Good morning, Christ Bible Church. We are so glad that uh, you are here with us uh, as we continue to work through uh, the book of Timothy. If you've not grabbed one of these uh, yet, there's a small stack of them in the back. This is just a scripture journal with the text of scripture on one side, blank pages on the other, so that you can take notes as you uh, go through and we preach through the book of Timothy and all the books that we do here. If you're visiting, uh, do not hesitate to take one. We have lots. We buy extras. Let it be our gift to you as you visit CBC and figure out if this is a church you want to be a part of uh, long term. Uh, we are a church who is committed to the Word of God. And with that, let us read 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7 as God's people this morning. Starting at verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your enduring word. Your living word. That convicts us. That shapes us. That encourages us. And as we gather as your people, as we hear your word this morning, we ask and pray that you would help us to be the people that you desire us to be. As we look at these words from Paul to Timothy for the church in Ephesus, Lord, that indeed we would be becoming that church, that we would hear these words, this call to a commitment to pray in our church, in our midst for everybody, Lord, not just those that are in the church, not just those that are outside, but rulers, Lord, for everybody that we come into contact with, Lord, let us become and be a praying church according to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our mediator and our savior. We ask that you would shape us and encourage us this morning. Let us hear these words, let them go into our minds and live out their truth in our hearts. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. In the year 64 AD, great fires broke out and consumed the city of Rome. Devastation was extensive as lives and property were lost in vast quantities. Already dissatisfied with their emperor, rumors began to swirl, to swirl that this emperor was responsible for the great fire and the destruction. You might know this emperor by his name. His name is Nero. He is the one who, at the beginning of his reign, had promised he would be a, an emperor full of humility. But by year eight, the humility that he began with had gone from humble leader to be demanding to be revered as a god. His restraint and demand for judicial fairness that started in his early years had disappeared as he is now known as a tyrant, violent, especially towards his political enemies. His popularity, which was almost unmatched at the beginning of his reign, had plummeted. The people no longer trusted him, and with the destruction of the city, its smoldering in the background, the anger of his citizens, Nero needed a diversion, and so he found one. Throughout the empire, there was a fledgling sect of people. They had become known as Christians. Tacitus, one of the great Roman historians, records this about this moment in time. 
Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty a class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled Christians. Vast numbers were convicted, not so much on count of arson, but more for hatred of the human race. Why start here as we're reading this passage on prayer? Why start with a history lesson on this crazy emperor named Nero? Because when Paul is writing to Timothy and he is receiving these words to himself and the church in Ephesus, the emperor, the king that he is mentioning here in verse 2 is Nero, the lawless dictator, the one who had caused great persecution to the church. And while it's unlikely that this letter was written when this persecution is breaking out, this king was still known at this point in time as a lawless, brutal dictator, one who was evil in every way. And so when Timothy reads these words and he sees the king, is, he's commanded to pray for the king, he should know and does know indeed that he is being commanded to pray for Nero himself. A call to prayer is what Paul has in mind in these seven verses. If Timothy and the church in Ephesus he leads are going to be faithful to the calling that God has placed on their lives, Paul is saying that it will start with prayer. Prayer that is comprehensive in what it prays for, prayer that is comprehensive in who it prays for. And so this morning, as we read God's word, as we look at what it talks about, we will have a look specifically at prayer in the church, and we will see just what prayer, according to Paul, should look like. And as we unpack all of this, we will be able to answer at the end of this, how can we pray honestly for an enemy? To do so, we'll look at three things Paul's going to tell us about prayer. First, the necessity of prayer. Two, the scope of prayer. And three, the hope of prayer. The necessity of prayer, the scope of prayer, and the hope of prayer. So let's read verse one again this morning. Paul writes this, first of all, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. The first three words of this chapter set the tone for this entire section. They take prayer from something that we should do and make it central to what we do, in fact, do. He says, first of all. Another way this could be interpreted and translated is above all else. Above all else, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made. He's not simply saying, do this first when you gather. What he is saying is prayer is of primary importance. What should Christian worship look like? It should look like prayer. And Paul is going to ground his plea for prayer in this fact that prayer is of first importance. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology talking about prayer notes that prayer is the primary way that we are involved with the activities of God that are eternally important. You want to evangelize. It starts with prayer. You want to raise kids who love the Lord. It starts with prayer. You want to worship. It starts with prayer. This is the point that Paul is trying to convey as he writes to Timothy. And so before Paul's even going to talk about who to pray for or what we should be praying, he is reminding Timothy to ground himself and the church in prayer. I must admit, I spent a lot of time this week 
stuck on this first verse. Why? Because I was asking myself, does this reflect my life? Does this reflect our church? Does this reflect our worship? And as I sat at my desk trying to write and trying to think and praying and praying and praying, Lord, help me as we formulating this text, understand it, the answer I kept coming back to those questions was a sheepish no. I could not say that my life or even the corporate worship of our church was one where prayer was a matter of first importance. Do we pray? Obviously we pray. We pray several times throughout every service. Do I pray? Of course, every day. But when something is important, it's of first importance, it's clear in the way that we dedicate times towards it. And honestly, when I evaluated my own life as I thought about our church, I could not say that this is the case. Prayer is important, but are we taking time to pray like Paul describes here? We're not alone in this. This is an epidemic, I think, in the American church. Think about when people visit churches. When you, many of you were visiting our church over the last several years, deciding whether you wanted to come to this church, you were asking questions. What is their doctrine? Great question. What is their preaching like? What's their music like? How are the kids' classes handled? Are my kids safe? Am I safe? Will I find encouragement? Will I find friendship? All good questions to ask. But I have yet to ever ask myself when somebody says, hey, can you help me find a church? I'm moving. Or hear of somebody asking us as a church or any other church, what is their prayer like? That's not a question we use to analyze a church. Is this church being biblically faithful? We don't ask the question, what does their prayer look like? But what is Paul saying here in chapter 2? First of all, Above all else, be a praying church. Many modern Christians have sidelined prayer. They pray. It's an important piece of their team in what they do, but it's relegated to a spot on the bench. We grab it when we need it. It's not what we go to all the time. And so we should hear these words of correction in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1. First three words, first of all, and look at it and say, is this us? If prayer is of primary importance to us as individuals, to us as a church, we should begin to reflect that in the way that we conduct our lives. If nothing else this morning when we leave, I would urge and pray and earnestly seek that we would see these first three words of this entire section and commit ourselves and our church to being a praying church. And although the weight of this passage moved me this week, the elders at CBC have long recognized that we should be praying more, that we want to be a church that prays more. And one of the things that we have talked about and actually have set to do before I even sat down this week is to have monthly prayer gatherings. And so on September 10th, which is a Sunday, in the evening there will be a uh, resumption of prayer gatherings that have been dormant for two or three years. And Zach will be leading a group of people to gather and to pray as God calls us to pray here at 7 p.m. on that Sunday evening. And so I would urge you right now, mark it on your calendars. Join us that Sunday evening to be a church who gathers and spends time praying together for the body and for the world. But let's keep moving. 
Paul sets the necessity, the importance of prayer. It's of primary, of first importance. But now he's going to spend the rest of the section talking about the scope of prayer. What and for whom should we be praying? So let's go back to verse 1. First of all, we covered that. What's he say? I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. Paul has started with the what we should be praying. And he gives us these four words, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. If you read that and say, what's the difference? You're not alone. There is large overlap in each of these. And although they are unique and highlight different things, they are largely synonymous. And so we might ask, why would Paul not just say, first of all, I urge you to pray for all people. Why add these four synonyms? Well, some have argued that this is a type of liturgy Paul is introducing into the church. This is how you pray. First, you make supplications, then you make general prayers, then you make intercessions, then you make thanksgivings. But I do not think that is the case. We will notice as we read this section, the universal is constantly in play. He uses the word all repeatedly. And what he is pointing to, I believe, is saying our prayer should be comprehensive. The reason he uses these four terms is to say before he gets into anything else regarding prayer and the outworking of who they should be prayed for, that our lives should be marked by comprehensive prayer that meets the concerns and the needs facing those we are praying for. G.W. Knight in his commentary makes this succinct statement helping us understand these four terms and how they might make these comprehensive view of praying for people. He says it's these four things. One, making requests for specific needs. Two, bringing those in view before God. Three, appealing boldly on their behalf. And four, having thankfulness for them. Together, these four combine to show a complete care for the person we are to pray for. But it's not just what. It's not just comprehensively praying. Paul's going to spend time now talking about who. And Paul says these things should be made for all people. We will see this universal care that Paul has here throughout these seven verses. There is no one, not even the emperor himself, that we should not feel obligated to pray for. A biblical and faithful prayer life will include all of those areas, making requests to God, bringing people in view of God, appealing boldly on behalf of people to God, and expressing people or expressing thankfulness for all people. Why is he doing this? Why is he encouraging them to pray for all people? Well, there might be a uprising. Part of the false teaching that's there is discussing that there's Judaizers, people who are focused on the law and you need to be of this group or this sect. And if you're not, then we don't pray for you or you're not having salvation. And Paul is saying, no, The Christian message is for Jews and Gentiles. It's literally for all people. But why should we do this? Paul's going to answer this in the remaining verses. And ultimately, we could sum it up like this. We should pray for all people because God desires all people. And our prayers should then in return be a reflection of what God desires. And so Paul tells Timothy and to the church what the scope of his prayer should be. It's not just comprehensive in what it prays for, it's comprehensive in who it prays for. It's to be for all people. The members of the church, 
the rulers and the authorities, the Jews and the Gentile, men and women, Paul is trying to let prayer reflect the desires of God, that all people should come to a knowledge of the truth and that they should hear the truth of Jesus and follow him. To help us do this, Paul even helps to guide our prayers towards rulers and authorities, those who are in power over us. He says, pray for the kings and those in high positions that what? Not just that things would go well with us, but specifically he says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This seems like a little bit of a detour from the path that he was charting out. He's not just going to talk about prayer. He's going to say, here's a specific way you can pray towards these specific types of people. And it is a little bit of a detour. But Paul understands something. If our prayers make an impact, which Scripture says that they do, then Paul is going to give us specific direction in an area of governmental authority and how we should pray for them. We should pray, first and foremost, for our government, for the kings, for the rulers, not just comprehensively for their well-being, being thankful for what they do and things like that, but specifically that the effect of their labors is that Christians are able to lead a quiet and peaceful life. The basic benefit of good governance is peace. A good government is a peaceful government, not causing strife everywhere. There's freedom from war and from civil strife. Paul had experiences in this. If you go to the book of Acts, you'll see in chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus and he's preaching. And at the end of his time there, there's a small uprising. People don't like him. And there is a riot in the square. What happens? There is a man, a city clerk, who calms the crowd and Paul is able to leave. He has seen the effect of good governance, preserving peace, so that the mission of the church can continue. Paul knew that a peaceful society benefited the mission of the church. Peaceful conditions facilitate the propagation of the gospel. The ultimate object of our prayers for national leaders then, for us today, when we're praying for those that are in power and authority and pass laws and all of those things, should be in the context of the peace that they preserve. Religion and morality can flourish and evangelism can go forward without interruption. Pray that we might leave a peaceful and quiet life. But so often, how do we pray for our national leaders? We don't pray for peace, but we pray for war. We want to go to battle with the overlords. There's a time and a place where that may be necessary, but Paul is reminding us here that the primary posture should be that we desire peaceful conditions that we might do the work that God has called us to. Winning the culture war is meaningless if the war for people's soul is lost in the midst of it. First, let us be a people who see that prayer is the means for winning souls, and then let everything else flow out of that. If in our zeal we forget that prayer is a first and foremost, not for winning and putting our objectives and missions first, but for the souls of the lost, and instead we end up only praying for the outworking of our moral, the morality of our faith, we've lost sight of our mission as Christians. Paul is saying, pray for the leaders that we might live quiet and peaceful lives, that we might be able to do the work that God has called us to do without any fuss. We have forgotten often what is of primary importance and what is secondary. Target and Bud Light are not primarily important. The gospel is salvation for the lost. Does your prayer life, and specifically your prayer life towards governmental authorities, reflect this? If in our zeal for doing what is right, 
let us not forget what is most important, the souls of the lost. But the all here is not just dealing with these people in power that he's going to talk about there in verse 2. It's literally for all the people. Prayer for government is specifically addressed so that prayer for all people can be accomplished. John Stott notes that the reason Paul's stressing all people here might be, like I said earlier, that Paul might have in mind those nationalistic Jews who believe themselves to be God's privileged favorites and forgot, forgot God's original promise to bless all earth's families through Abraham. He goes on to say this, in our day there are other versions of this monopoly spirit that we need to repent of. Racism, nationalism, tribalism, classism, together with the pride and prejudice which are the cause of these narrow horizons. The truth of the matter is this, God loves the whole world and desires all people to be saved and so commands us to preach the gospel to all the nations and to pray for their conversion. Our prayers should reflect that. How can we do this? Well, we can be a people who pray for all people because we can understand that God desires all people. His concerns are for the whole world. And that's why in verse 4, he says this, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, we have to stop and talk about this for a moment because this is a verse that causes many people to trip up. Along with 2 Peter 3.9, which says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Many people have abandoned the faith, the true faith, because of these two verses coming to one of several false conclusions. One, they read this, and they say, the Bible says some people perish, other people don't. Does God get everything that he desires? Rob Bell was famous for this. If you remember Rob Bell about 10, 15 years ago, he was a Christian that every like, college group in the world watched his videos. And then all of a sudden, he went on Oprah and he became a universalist. Why? Because he said, if God gets what he desires because he's God, does God not desire all people to be saved? Therefore, this must be universalism. However, we can quickly dispel that throughout all of Scripture, but even here in verse 5, when it says this cannot be the case because there's only one mediator. Scripture itself says universalism is off the table. It's not what this is talking about. Even Paul here from verse 4 to verse 5 dispels that. So then others move on and say, well, then the Bible must contradict itself. It can't be full of, uh, of inerrancy. It must have errors in it. Maybe somebody miswrote something, and so it has errors. But we also have professed the Bible is without error. There's many reasons why we can affirm this to be uh, through science and through text criticism and all kinds of things, but we know the Bible, uh, and it's been passed down to us, and we can be confident in its words. And we would affirm as Orthodox Christians that the Bible does not have any errors. So that cannot be the case. Well, then third, people go on to say, well, Maybe when God desires all people, what he's saying is all people here is just all people who are saved. But this doesn't seem to make any sense, right? If you played video games much as a kid, so some of you that are my age and, and younger, you played video games, and the great thing about video games is they're really easy. There's a little arrow, that's a little dot that's pointing over somebody's head, and you just run to that person, and then you complete that mission, and you go to the next arrow and the next dot. But the problem is, in the Christian life, we are called to be people who go and make disciples of all nations, to live out the Great Commission, to evangelize. There's no dots 
over people's heads saying, this, this guy's one of your mission. Go to him, share the gospel, pray with him, then go on to the next. Ignore all the people who don't have the little yellow dots bouncing over their head. Life is not a video game. There's no arrow over everybody's head saying, mission is right here. Come and pray for this person. We don't know who's going to be saved and not saved. We are not God. And so people read these and say, what, is the, what could the solution be? But there is an option. There is the correct option. And it's this. What's in view here, and I would also argue in view in Second Peter, is not all people as in every single person, but in all kinds of people. He's dealing, again, with Jewish people who might not see the Gentiles as important. In verse 7, he's talking about his Gentile mission to all people. I need to go to all the world to spread and preach the gospel. And so when he's saying pray for all people, they're saying there is no limit to the kinds of people. There is no one that's like, ah, I don't pray for those people. Paul's saying that's off limits. All people is referring to to all classes of people, types of people. But that alone is not sufficient because we can continue to read and say, well, isn't it what God wants? Doesn't God want us to share the gospel with all people? And we can't look at that and now say, well, all people in Peoria, for example, have heard the gospel because it's here, we've preached the gospel in Peoria. So the kinds of people that live in North Peoria, the gospel's been preached We're off the hook. We no longer need to evangelize. That's not sufficient. We can't just say because the gospel was shared with this kind of person, we're no longer obligated to pray for this. Paul is saying all people means that pretty much everybody we come into contact with, regardless of their background, regardless of what nation, class, etc. that they're like, we should be people who care about them who seek their good, who want to share the gospel, to pray for them, to pray for their well-being, to intercede on their behalf, to go before Christ and to pray for them. But there's still something left here. Many of you are like, that doesn't really answer anything. There's still tension there. And the reality is that whenever we see in Scripture the tension between human responsibility, what God commands us to do here, pray for salvation for all people, And divine sovereignty, God's power over all things, including the destiny of his creation, the right response is not to make some superficial harmonization by manipulating the words or the meanings. It's to say, or to say the Bible contradicts itself, but it's to simply affirm that both parts of the equation are true. Yes, humans have responsibility. We are to pray for all people, regardless of where they are at or what they are like. Also, not all people go to heaven. Scripture affirms that. But we shouldn't see the tension there and come to some false conclusion. We should humbly confess that at this present time and in our present state, our little minds are unable to resolve everything, and that's okay. God is God, and we are not. We must be okay with saying, I believe it's true, even if I can't work out every single detail of how it plays out. There is mystery because God is infinite and we are finite. We should expect that and we should embrace it. Further, we should be reminded by the prayer for all people here that it's a reflection of God's concern for all people. And whatever we might decide about election and predestination, we are absolutely forbidden to limit the scope of world mission. The gospel must be preached to all. Salvation must be offered to all while acknowledging not all will believe. We can pray for all people because the work of God is for 
all people. So finally, what is the hope of prayer? What is the hope of prayer as Paul is unpacking this for it? Not only should our prayer reflect God's desire, but our prayer should also be a reflection of God's work. That's why Paul goes on to say here, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The hope of prayer is Jesus did the work. Prayer is a way that we remind ourselves that it's not up to us. We are not the judge. We cannot determine whether someone is saved or not. We don't make that decision. We're not like, you're in, you're out. No, God's the one that moves. The Holy Spirit resurrects. We just faithfully proclaim the message. And so the hope of prayer is that we pray to the only one who can and has saved Jesus, the one who is our mediator and the one who gave his life, as Paul says, as a ransom for all. There is no favoritism. There can be no snobbery left when we see that the only way is Jesus. Rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, male or female, none can come to salvation by any other means. All are desperate sinners with no way out besides Jesus. Prayer reminds us that we are no better than anyone else, for there are none more worthy than salvation than others. All are condemned by God apart from Christ. So often we forget who we were apart from Jesus. If we've been Christians for many, many years, we begin to see ourselves as people who probably deserve to be saved, who probably deserve the blessings of God. We are not careful, and maybe without verbalizing it, we become that Pharisee in Luke 18. You might not know this story. Jesus tells this parable of this Pharisee and this tax collector who are praying at the temple. What does the Pharisee do? He's a religious leader, the one who seemingly has it all put together, who's doing all the right things, who's memorized all the scriptures. He gets up and he prays. What does he pray? Lord, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that I'm not like these other men, the extortionists, the unjust, the adulterers, and even like this tax collector that's standing right over here. Thank you that I am not like them. But then he talks about the tax collector, the one that the Pharisee is probably pointing to off to the side. And what is this guy doing? He's beating his chest, pleading to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What does Jesus say? That is the man that walks away justified. Prayer, proper prayer, reminds us that we are all fully and wholly dependent on the work of Jesus. Our worth is not in what we do. It's not our own. It's in the work of Jesus Christ. The tax collector understood this. He needed God's mercy. The Pharisee did not. Prayer is a way of grounding us and reminding us that we are in need of a Savior. All we need is Jesus. He is the one that can work and do these things. A healthy prayer life keeps our dependence on him at the forefront and keeps us of thinking of ourselves more than we should. Central to our ability to have a heart and a prayer life that's truly for all people is to remember that we ourselves are a ransomed people. We should remember the words from that old Edward Mote hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. We sing this song from time to time here at CBC, a modern rendition of it, but the first verse goes like this if you're not familiar. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame 
but wholly lean on Jesus' name? Does our prayer for people center around hope in Jesus, or do we primarily hope in other things? Does our prayer life show that our hope is actually in material possessions, or in family peace, or restored relationships with the world, or those that are around us? Or does our prayer life center around the work of Jesus in our lives, praying and pleading that he would continue his work in the lives of all those that are around us? The core of our prayer should be the salvation and the sanctification of those that we pray for, including ourselves. Our prayers are only effective because Jesus is effective. He's the mediator for all. He is the one who is the ransom for all. So we can pray for all people because the work of Jesus was for all people. We don't hold the keys to the kingdom. He does. We don't get to choose who makes it into heaven and who doesn't. Jesus does. So if we find ourselves struggling to pray, we should remember Jesus prayed and lived for all. How can you pray for an enemy then? By seeing them not as an enemy, but as a sinner in need of grace. And seeing one of your fundamental purposes as a Christian to be a person who is praying for those yet to experience the grace of Jesus. If the Christians, when Paul is writing this to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus, could be commanded to pray for Nero, who was a brutal dictator known for killing his political opponents, certainly we should read these verses today and know that we should pray even for those that we consider our opponents whether it be Joe Biden or any other religious person that we, dis or not religious person, political person that we disagree with. We are commanded as God's people to pray without exception. Let us take that to heart and see prayer as a primary piece of importance in our lives, both as a church and as individuals, and work to develop a love for all people that cherishes the things that God cherishes as well. A few questions to ask as we finish this morning. One, could someone define your prayer life as that of primary importance to your faith? What could you do to grow in the discipline of prayer? Two, does your prayer life show a desire for the lost to come to saving faith? What does who you pray about reveal where you can be more faithful in praying for all people? And finally, what does the impact of verse 5 and seeing Jesus as our mediator and ransom have on our prayers and our Christian conduct? How does it change in what we hope in? Let's pray. Father, our hope is in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Lord, we know intellectually so often that's true, but, but we live our lives void of that truth. And so we confess, Lord, that we've not always made prayer the primary importance, that we are not a people fully dedicated to praying for all people. We pray for our families, yes, we pray for those that ask for prayer, but Lord, I know at least myself personally, we could do, I could do a better job praying for the world, for global missions, for salvation of my neighbors. And so Lord, we pray that we would hear these words this morning and we would indeed be a people renewed in our commitment to be praying, to be seeing prayer as the way that we can participate in your eternal saving work, that we can be a people who see your hand working in those that are around us, that we might see the gospel flourish and the church expand according to your desires as the lost are converted. Lord, we pray for our leaders, 
We pray for our president, Lord, that the effect of his presidency would be that we would be able to have peace and quiet, that we would be able to operate ourselves as a church and as Christians with the hope of the gospel without interruptions. We pray for the same thing for our governor here in Arizona, that you would allow her to pass good laws and make good regulations that would cause the church to flourish, that we might be left alone so that we might share the gospel and fulfill our mission to bring the gospel and to care and to pray for all people. Lord, we pray for the foreign nations, that they might come to hear your truth, that they might have a gospel awakening, that there might be revival in different countries as they come to hear the gospel, that it would break through in places that have suppressed it like China, Lord, that the result of your work would be many people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, even in countries where they try to squash it. And so, Lord, we pray that your purposes for your church would continue to go forward. And we pray that you would help us to be a church committed to being prayerful and to keeping prayer as a means of participating in that global mission and purpose. We thank you for Jesus. We, lo- we know that he is our mediator, that he alone is what goes between us and you, God. He is the one that brings our petitions and our prayers to you, and so we thank you for his work. His work is our mediator, but Lord, his work as the one who ransomed, who gave his life to bring us new life, Lord. And so out of his death, we thank you that we have life. Lord, let us never forget that. Let us never look at other people like we are more deserving than them, but to look at them with compassion, to see them as sinners in need of mercy, just as we once were before we heard the hope of the gospel. And let us be faithful people who don't live with, cons- with, with pride, with selfishness, but Lord, who see ourselves as fully dependent on you for all things in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.